0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: You made it. If you found this hidden website, it's because someone thought you were worthy of being here. Congratulations, this is the beginning of your life. You are also a Cordovite. This is the place where you can do anything, reveal anything, but you cannot lie. Go lie somewhere else on the internet and put a fake smile on your face and dumb yourself down into a series of idiot choices like like or dislike. Here, while there is total anonymity, there is the belief only in the unassailable truth of things, the Cordova truth. The complexity of the human mind and resilience of the human spirit. The desire for terror, the desire for love, the desire for emotional experiences that rip you apart. This site is a terrifying reality. A sacred workspace, a dangerous wood. A place where you can discuss and question everything your family and friends, your religion, your society is threatened by and afraid of. This is a world away from what is glossy and commercialized. A place that is dirty and eerie and horrifying. Messy and ugly and fascinating. A place that has no bottom and no walls. There is only the fight for something worthy here. Something honest. Cordova, that is what he urges us to find within ourselves and all of his work. Our honest selves. Cordova has nothing to do with this site. He might not even know it exists. This was created by his most serious fans as an extension of what he... Whoever he is, has done for us. Point the way down the dark tunnel that will set us free. Fear is the first step. Warning. If we find that you in any way are debilitating this raw and wild space, there will be consequences. We believe in freedom of expression and complexity. But we, the creators of this blacked-out corner, will fight to keep it black. The creators of the blackboards. Sovereign. Deadly. Perfect.
0: Marisha Pessl is the author of Special Topics in Calamity Physics. Her new novel is Night Film. Thank you for joining me, Marisha.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This novel is so interesting. It covers so much in what seems and feels like so little space. And I, one of the things I really loved about this novel, for all its obsession with darkness and fear, is there's... This novel is a lot of fun to read.
1: <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that.
0: I'd like you to talk about creating the voice of Scott McGrath. You had your previous novel, Special Topics in Calamity Physics, had the, this great narrator whose voice is impossible to forget, Blue Van Meer. And I'd like you to talk about that transition to go from, going from Blue to Scott.
1: Well, when I began to think on my second novel and the world that I wanted to create, I began with mood. But there was certainly a sense that I, as a writer, needed a new frontier. And I was very resistant to anything that I had done previously with special topics. Obviously, I had this adolescent hyper literate narrator who certainly saw the world around her through all of these books that she had read. Um, And I knew that I wanted a much more streamlined, rational voice. I was certainly fighting against what I had done previously. I began to build the world of night film and the backstories and the characters, but I didn't know specifically what voice I was going to use to channel that story. And originally, I actually wrote through the voice of uh, another main character named Hopper who had a more adolescent voice as well. And I immediately threw that out knowing that um, I wanted something much more mature, much more wizened. And I finally accepted that I would be writing from this 43-year-old washed-up investigative reporter.
0: <laughs> I really like Scott McGrath. He's such an interesting character. He's a lot of fun. And one of the things that interests me is that it, the way the book begins, we meet him before we know him, and I think that's an interesting technique.
1: Yes, I wanted the first scene that really brings the reader with a immediate, vibrant sense of what the story is going to be, a very dislocated scene— Uh, Scott is running around the New York um, Central Park Reservoir. There's a sense that he's a little bit drunk. So what is real, what is not, what does he actually see, what doesn't he see is always brought into the question, is questioned in the reader's mind. I think I wanted a, a modern Gothic tone so readers immediately know they're going into this dark tunnel and they're not going to emerge from this submersion until the end of the book.
0: You seem to have a fascination in this book with absolutely annihilating the lines between fiction and fact, between characters who are real and characters who are meant to seem real. I'd like you to talk about that interest of yours as a writer because it really informs this book. It's, this, in a sense, the core of this book.
1: It does. And I think I— it. It's really my questioning as a human being, even beyond a writer. I think that what we believe in reality is, of course, born entirely in our minds. And when I set out to write this book, I wanted to take a very logical, rational, somewhat ordinary man in some respects and drive him to believe in things that he never thought he would believe in, to accept as reality um, something that he previously would have accepted as fantastical. So moving between those lines and trying to determine what we believe is the truth. And and will we recognize the truth when we finally stumble upon it? Or does it always go on? That's really what Night Film is about.
0: At the center of this book is a main character who is essentially in absentia. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And so this must have been a challenge for you to create Stanislav's Cordova. Talk about creating a film director uh, whom we don't really
1: see. Yes. I mean, some of my favorite books that I fell in love with as a child and a young adult were Rebecca, for example, or Jane Eyre. And they are so informed by characters who are not present. And yet we see the crumbs that these characters have laid, like in Jane Eyre, Rochester's um, mad ex-wife who certainly makes appearances, but Jane doesn't know, is it real or is it not? Um, so I've always loved this idea of absence and how through witness stories, eyewitness reports, these characters who are not present come to life in, in a much larger fashion than if they actually walked onto the page and what that means and how we can have so many contrasting stories about one man or woman and how we have to reconcile that when we're in the present and they're not here.
0: There are This book also revolves around all sorts of stories within stories. A character will show up and tell their story about somebody else or a story that they heard. Yes. I really love your sense of story in this book. It's, it's fractal.
1: Well, thank you. And that was really how I approached the book, not as a novel about a filmmaker and not necessarily film, but stories and how stories connect us as human beings, how it allows us Telling a story to another person allows us to connect, but it also allows us to order our lives and order chaos and order violent experiences we might have had. I mean, I personally was really affected by my grandmother passing away over the course of writing night film. And in um, the last few months of her life, she moved into an assisted living facility in Asheville, North Carolina. And I had never been so in tune with how stories were crucial to life and crucial to the human experience. Because um, in the last few months of my grandmother's life, she had this voracious need to tell me her stories, talk about the Depression, talk about her marriage, talk about her life in South America. But then also all these other people that she was living with in this facility, people who are strangers to me, also wanted to tell me about their grandchildren and about um, certain experiences they had had. And there was this mad need to leave your story behind. And that, of course, affected Night
0: I can tell because the stories you talk about appear in different forms, kind of like icebergs rising up uh, from underneath the ocean in the novel.
1: Exactly. Well, the iceberg itself is definitely a symbol in my own mind of what storytelling and writing a novel is, and that I, as the creator, like to have the entire geography of what the iceberg is, but I know there will only be the surface of that at times revealed to the reader, and um, so that is actually like the, the perfect symbol because I always think in, in terms of characters like Icebergs and that um, when my main characters encounter a person, it's it, what part of personality and what part of experience am I going to reveal to the reader and what are they going to react to? And it is always as Icebergs.
0: You know, one of the things that I thought when I was approaching this novel about it, Director, film director who's directed horror films and he's missing, and we don't, there's a kind of a death at the beginning. I'm thinking this is going to be a dark and disturbing and maybe a kind of a hard to read novel, but it's kind of lighthearted and funny (laughs) for a lot of it. And I think you did a great job of that. So I'd like you to talk about uh, using that contrast between the darkness that is kind of in the background in this novel but yes. the kind of, the fun you have setting up this little mini detective agency and these characters it
1: is i mean i think that reflects my own worldview, that no matter how dark things can get there's an uh, there's an opportunity for lightness and humor and the human spirit is remarkably flexible and elastic and even and it's been my own life experience when I or people I know are in dark situations, there's an ability to be able to handle that level of darkness with humor, with relief, with connecting with people you never thought you would connect with. Um, So... I love having that. I mean, I think, and also when you have darkness on top of darkness on top of darkness, when there is no contrast, the weight of the darkness can lose its meaning. I think that things are best defined by contrast. So if you're going to have darkness within your book, well, I should speak specifically, if I'm going to have darkness in, in my book, I like to have contrast. I like to have lightness, too. So then we have a full spectrum of, and a, a, lar- a long frequency.
0: You know, one of the things that I love about this book, and it's also uh, present in uh, special topics, is your uh, handle on metafiction, on making stuff up, on using uh, what you call in special topics uh, visual aids. Mm-hmm. This is makes reading so much fun. And I'd like you to talk Thank about, uh, as a writer— thinking about in advance putting in these kind of visual bits Mm -hmm. to keep the reading going and balancing that out and making that part of the reading experience.
1: Well, when I conceived Night Film, it really, from the very beginning, it always had this scrapbook quality. And when I was talking to my agent and editor as to what I wanted to create – I didn't hand them, or I didn't even talk to them about a washed-up investigative journalist and a a reclusive filmmaker and his daughter. I really started with all of these different scraps. I started with Scott's case notes of a biography that he had written about Cordova. And then I had a letter from a headmaster who was informing parents that their son had been expelled, and that was the genesis of Hopper's character. Um, So I had all of these newspaper clippings, and I had the obituary from the New York Times, and it always had this voyeuristic, tactile, alive visual piece to it for whatever reason. I liked the multitude of voices and allowing the reader to, after reading all of those voices and hearing them, formulate his or her own conclusions as to where the truth might lie. And um, so night film always had that. But in terms of um, setting, you know, designing all these pieces, I treated each one like a work of art. And I wanted each piece to come at a point in the narrative where readers could take a slight break and then peruse it almost as with this voyeuristic feeling as if they were in... um, you know, in a police station, and had act- <laughs> and had been snooping and pulled over open this police file and to be able to page through um, specific documents. That to me, is really exciting. So I wanted night film to have that feeling.
0: I really like uh, the way you do this, and and you are—it's know, very chameleonic. You have to—you created this whole website for the the core which is has the right feel for a website. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about that aspect of it. Uh, you did a good job of. Bringing up enough technology so that it rings true but not bringing up so much that we start to think about the technology instead of the story. And that's a hard balance to strike.
1: It is. And it's actually something that is really a challenge because you have to – if you're writing – In modern times, you have to accept technology as a way. Characters are going to be moving through space. They're going to be interacting with other characters through technology. But in terms of mood, in terms of language, it just limits you so much because the language around technology is not moist, it isn't poetic. So you immediately start to have this very sort of Gen X feel to your book. Um, So I am constantly fighting against that. But unless I'm going to start writing historical fiction where no one has a cell phone or no one ever goes on the Internet, it really is walking such a fine line.
0: I I love the uh, gothic sensibility of this, too, because um, it. It does seem like uh, the House of Seven Gables or something where there's something different in every room. And and these rooms are, you know, different hotels, different places. Mm -hmm. I'd like you to talk about creating these kind of moist, dark places that you create and— putting them together so that they don't just seem like episodes, but it reads like a novel. And that's a difficult task.
1: Well, right. And I think you just hit something. Well, that was was one of my main aims, to find those hidden recesses within our overexposed world. I mean, everyone right now talks about Manhattan, that there's a Starbucks on every corner and a gap every block. But- if you start digging, you will find the hidden warehouses where, um, you know, people have squatted and uh, filled with graffiti and strange uh, strange messages spray-painted on the wall and um, s- subcultures like witchcraft. I mean, enchantments is a real place. So I set out to find those subcultures and those dark spaces within... Um, within a location Manhattan which is really considered now to be without the ethnic neighborhoods that it used to have so famously um, and just finding those places that still exist and some argue are quickly going away but i said it was my mission to find them and i did i did physically go to each place that the characters go to with the exception of the one location at the very very end of the novel i've been everywhere and um and it was that was my purpose, to find those hit dark spaces and those dark corners.
0: Wow, that sounds—you thats went you underwent your own odyssey to write about someone exactly. else's odyssey.
1: Exactly. Well, I think that the writer has to have the same journey as the characters um, in some context.
0: Now, one of the things I like about this is that at the core is we have these three characters who meet and form what— Reads like once we get into a kind of a detective agency yes. in, in its own kooky manner, <laughs> and I I think the kookiness of it really appealed to me because it was fun. Right. Uh, although what they're de- they're investigating is kind of dark and a little bit scary and really weird and threatening, uh, the the three principles when you put them together they're kind of goofy and i really oh, like but that aspect that. of it
1: i know now i wanted to have a sense that all three characters are adrift and just like anything when you are floating and come across something you can grab onto of course you're going to grab onto it and yes they are an unlikely band of outsiders but i think that when you have when you're lonely and when you don't know what direction to go in and you know a vibrant person comes into your life, of course, you're going to cling to them. Um, So I wanted them to have that feeling. And there is a sort of goofiness, of course, because it's so unlikely. And um, but it's poignant. And I think at the end of their journey, their lives are transformed by each other. As, as all good friends are.
0: I, I would agree, and that's one of the things is that you make that transition nicely. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Scott McGrath, because he's a disgraced journalist, yes. and that immediately makes him, to us, a somewhat untrustworthy narrator, but... <laughs> Depending
1: on how, how many scotch he's been drinking, exactly.
0: D- tell us a little bit about creating his voice and creating his backstory in life, which I think is important. It, it's key to this whole novel.
1: Yes. I mean, I wanted to start the book with a character who was really on the ropes of life and um, really starting at a place where he had hit rock bottom. I mean, his professional life was in tatters. His personal life was in shambles. He was a bit of a makeshift father. Um, He had not really figured out how to be a father and over the course of this journey he be able to he i mean he's able to come back from that moment um but i wanted it to be in a very realistic way and um a flawed character um is is a is a great character to write um with some redeeming qualities
0: now his uh disgrace comes at the hands of, of the uh, director. And I think that you set up this kind of um, antagonist protagonist, but he's really charging at essentially a black hole. And I think that makes his um, battle interesting and more complicated for you as a writer.
1: Exactly. I mean, I love the idea that because Cordova is absent and all we have are the rumors that circulate around him and these old newspaper articles and, of course, his films and the rumors and the the secret websites. So it really is a battle that takes place in the mind. And Sun Tzu is quoted throughout Night Film and his Art of War I had definitely been reading while I was working on night film, and just reading about how all battles are won first and foremost in the mind. And and if your enemy is able to penetrate your head, um, that's the most dangerous place for any enemy to live. And, of course, Cordova does that with Scott.
0: Yeah, that's a, a great quote in there when, mm-hmm. when Scott realizes that— uh, uh, Cordova is in his mind the most dangerous place for any enemy to hide. Exactly. I, I love that quote. <laughs> now, I'd like you to talk too about his helpers. We we have, he meets a girl, Nora, and Hopper. He he's a boy, and so I'd like you to talk about these crafting these two characters and bringing them into mm-hmm. his life. Did you know how soon when you were writing? Did you know about these characters?
1: I knew that. I had always had the idea of a waif, this young... Well, so the two characters you're talking about are Nora Halliday and Hopper Cole there. Hopper is a a adrift in New York City. He's a low-grade drug dealer. He is someone who lives at night and um, lives in the periphery of... Manhattan. In that context, he's a night owl. And Nora is someone very green who's just arrived at the city in order to be an actress like so many like, women before her. And um, so those two characters, I would say, come from my own life. When I first moved to the city. As, well, I was transferring from Northwestern to Barnard College, and I was doing a lot of off-off-Broadway theater. And so, of course, I had my classes up at Columbia, but then I would go downtown and rehearse at some very derelict theater, and I would encounter such um, incredible people from so many different walks of life who had arrived on the shores of Manhattan in order to follow their dreams. Uh, so those two characters really came out of um, my experience in that context, but um, they were always there because I think I loved the idea of three people adrift coming together, and then they each have very personal reasons for embarking on this investigation, which certainly come to light over the course of the novel.
0: The the inciting incident is the the death. Of a, a girl, and I'd like you to talk about again. Here we have characterization in absentia. there There's almost as many characters who aren't in this novel, who are important to it, as the as who are in the novel.
1: Exactly. Well, it's well. So um, at the outset of the novel. Scott McGrath finds out that Ashley Cordova, the daughter of this reclusive filmmaker no one has seen in 30 years, has been found dead. Um, and this really opens an old wound for him because um, six years previously he had begun investigating Cordova and began to suspect that this man was not only a cult figure but he was actually up to something that was very maniacal. And um, Scott has a nose for hypocrisy and evil. And there was something about what he began to learn that really set off some warning bells. So when he finds out that this young woman has been found dead, um, it all comes back to him. And it's really Ashley Cordova that I knew when I was setting out to write night film, I knew that she was really the heart of the book. Cordova, I actually consider the son and, of course, you can't look directly at the sun because you'll go blind. But if you look at the planets orbiting the sun, um, and specifically that would be Ashley and what her experience was, that was the way in for me in writing the book, her her life and what she was about and what she stood for.
0: You write well about artists, artists. Uh, uh both about Cordova and about Ashley, and especially about the, her music. I thought that was really beautifully done and evoked. I'd like you to talk about writing about different forms of art because, uh, again, you're creating art about art. Yes. So this is a little bit of a, uh, a Hall of Mirrors effect you have.
1: Well, I think that all writers, when they're writing a novel, are trying to wrestle certain questions that are burning for them to the ground. and uh, And I certainly am mesmerized and enthralled by what it means to create art in today's age and um, what that means for the creator and what it means for personal relationships. And um, I certainly read a lot of biographies of Kubrick and Picasso and all different forms of artists, Balanchine, uh, and what their experience was and their mad desire to create, but also what it meant for everyone around them and the children. And um, so all of that, the, probably because I'm try- I've always been <laughs> trying to figure that out in my own life, um, I certainly find it compelling to write about.
0: You mentioned that you spent some time in the theater and off-off Broadway. Yeah. I, I'd <laughs> like you to talk a little bit about that and how that uh, slots in with your writing because it seems natural and uh, a natural means of helping you create characters.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I do. I think because both novels, Special Topics and Night Film, have been written from a first person point of view, I start to build the character from the ground up. And one of the things I learned about in theater, when you're building a character, um, you have to have the backstory incredibly alive to you, even though that won't necessarily ever be overtly revealed in your performance. You have to make all of those details very much alive to you, which is what I certainly did with Night Film, building the entire backstory of um, not just Cordova, but Scott and um, what his circumstances were, what Cordova's circumstances were really from the beginning, the day he was born until the very present, well, the present moment of his life. So all of that. But then you also have, you learn very quickly in theater is that you never judge the character that you're playing. And I certainly adopt that when I'm creating any character, whether it's a villain or a hero, you refrain from judgment and try to focus on their human spirit and why they might make very depraved choices um, and then allow readers to judge. But I will not. Well, unless I step back and I'm the reader, then I can judge. But as the creator, I don't like to.
0: One of the things I love about the way the story unfolds in this book is – We'll hear something from one person's perspective. One of your characters will tell a story about something that happens, and then somebody else will tell a story about something that happens, and somebody else will tell a story. Mm-hmm. And in each story, we get a little piece of a bigger picture. And as readers, it's really fun to put that together. And that's, I think, part of your sense of pacing the novel mm-hmm. that keeps the pages turning and makes us want to keep them turning until just about the very end when we really don't want it to end. <laughs> (laughs) So I'd like you to talk about using the stories within the stories to build the bigger story yes. and pacing those kind of revelations.
1: I always had a sense that it would be this sort of overlapping collage. You're absolutely right. And occasionally someone will get a piece of information wrong, as it's human to do. Um, but I, of course, as the creator of this world, need to have a very specific handle on the entire timeline when certain things happen and then knowing that all of that is going to be refracted through a human experience. So I have a a Bible in the form of a moleskin notebook that I have all the truth, the unvarnished truth of what went on in the, on this planet, which is night film, and then knowing um, that certain characters are going to be pu- pulling out those threads and allowing them to come to light. Um, but I love that because I think in the end you get this mosaic, and readers will be able to um, decide what they think is true and what is not. and um, But all of that is firmly rooted in the sense of I, as the writer, know exactly what happened.
0: Well, I guess there are a lot of people on this earth who would love to see that moleskin notebook. Has...
1: <laughs> I actually have some pictures of it on my website, but I'm I'm thinking about revealing moral. But it's very personal, so we'll see.
0: One of the things, I, I, characters I really loved— was a guy named Spider. And Mm -hmm. he plays such an interesting part in the novel. So I'd like you to talk about creating this character and weaving him into the novel in that we see him a few times before we meet him. And and Mm -hmm. this is an interesting technique for you as a writer.
1: Yes, I mean, he... Well, specifically, when they start to investigate Ashley's death, they sense that she, when they piece together the last 10 days of her life, they sense that she was inching closer and closer to this character that you're talking about, the spider, which was, uh, he was an associate of Cordova. So it's fi- trying to locate him exactly within the world. Why Ashley would have sought this particular person out? That's really one of the major hearts of Nightfall, if not the major heart. Um, but you're right. I think he, for me, was a sort of like black cloud that would suddenly, or like a black vapor that would appear in many different people's stories. Um, but he always had this um, toxic quality. And even when he's mentioned in one sentence or offhandedly by a witness, um, that vapor sort of permeates everything until, of course, the main character is able to track him down.
0: And one of the things, too, this brings up, I think that um, we see this in Cordova's films and we also see it in your novel, is the effectiveness of telling us enough to tantalize us with some vision of horror, but leaving the reader to complete that vision of horror or the viewer, as it were, in Cordova's films. I think this is an interesting technique. It's the famous uh, Lovecraftian kind of horror, although you
1: eschew (laughs) the elder gods. Right, right. I mean, I've always... I mean, night film was about being afraid. The nature of fear. Can we be afraid in this day and age? Um, I think night film is about terror, not horror, because terror is fear over what you think you're about to see, but you have not seen, while horror is revulsion and fear over what you've just seen. And night film is really about terror and inching closer and closer to what you're chasing down, which you find monumentally terrifying.
0: One of the things I think that interests me, too, is are all of Cordova's films that you've created. How much of those films do you know as a writer, how complete a plot do you have? And how much did you just leave for yourself as uh, windows of terror to create for the reader?
1: I have complete plots for all of them, and that was part of my world building before I started writing Night Film. I knew that I needed to make all of those 15 films very real to me, including the cast, including scenes and snippets of dialogue. So when Scott McGrath and his two compatriots are going on this journey, it's very offhand and easy for them to, in a certain context when they stumble upon a new clue or a new eyewitness, to think back to a certain scene in a Cordova film and find parallels or find contrasts or be suddenly struck by a strand of dialogue that has new meaning given the present. So I just had to make all of those films very alive to me as the creator so it would be alive to the characters as well.
0: You know, and that reminds me of one of my more favorite characters in this book, Wolfgang Beckman, <laughs> who, who plays I a very— I never
1: get to talk about him in interviews, so I'm glad you mentioned him. Uh,
0: He's Well, he's such a great character, and I'm trying to think of exactly how I would describe his character. He's, I guess— um, what you have in the horror movies is the guy who interprets the horror for mm-hmm. you to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. He's the kind of the, and it's almost the explainer.
1: Exactly the per- there, I mean, in all horror movies, there's this character. If you've seen Scream, it's the guy that's saying, "Okay, you know, you can't. If you're wearing a white nightgown, you're definitely gonna get <laughs> murdered." I mean, it's the person who, in the context of these stories, has pulled out. Some bottom lines and some theories and some philosophies and rules. And um, that's always so compelling. The person who has, the hyper literate person who has studied all of these, who can form a map and give it to you. And that's really what Beckman does.
0: And I love the the way just you've created the character because we really see him there as this kind of jowly, earthy (laughs) kind of person. So (laughs) in this kind of rotting apartment, talk about just creating that environment for him.
1: Well, I've always – I mean, the people who have inspired – I mean, I've come across Beckman in my own life. And that's the wonderful context of being in university and having a professor that can – make sense of your life and someone who seems to have all the answers and um, in both special topics and night film there is this very verbose passionate mad professor type I mean in special topics I would say that would be Gareth um, and then of course Beckman in night film and I think I had you know really vibrant Deep thinkers who would I would come to their office hours and they could speak to me extemporaneously on any subject under the sun, and they seemed to have life figured out. They were compelling, they were magnetic, and then I would find out more information, and I'd find out that they were all on their fifth marriage. And like, so maybe these people hadn't quite figured out life, but um, but they were still so charismatic and made such a deep impression on me. And I do I do love that character of the mad professor who um has a reason to the madness.
0: And, and this book, though it starts out in the real, recognizable, everyday, workaday world with investigating a murder and a disappearance, things rapidly become more and more uh, seemingly fantastical, and, and we end up at a shop that you told us was real earlier yes, on. Yes, a lot of people don't
1: realize that. I know. I think that... Um, Well, this is what's so incredible is that when I was researching night film, it was delving into a lot of these subcultures. And... There is, I mean, specifically with witchcraft, I spent a lot of time on for, in forums where people were discussing spells in all seriousness, and people would write in, my boyfriend of five years hasn't asked me to marry him yet, and then other witches would chime in, okay, you need to do the marry me potion, you know, get a strand of his hair and um, get a piece of his food and bear, put it in a glass bottle with X number of strange substances and bury it in his front yard in a place where he will walk over. And, you know, within three days, he's going to be asking you to marry him. So it's just the, the what is real and what is not is so subjective. And of course, I came to realize that, that um, what might be fantastical to us is very real and alive and concrete for other people. And um, I ended up having a real healthy respect for other people's beliefs um, in the course of writing Night film.
0: Well, that's, I think, one of the things that's interesting about this novel is that I think all of us have what I would call kind of... A omens we all see our own version of omens yes. and portents and signs, and signs mm-hmm. all around us and we all constantly interpret those signs and most of us have a realistic or what we at least believe to be a realistic interpretation of those right. signs but it not need not be and the difference between a realistic interpretation of a sign you see and a fantastic interpretation of the sign is actually just opinion and one exactly. of the, one of the things i like about your book is that It takes that and works us to that solution, that uh, kind of world of confusion very nicely without itself being confusing.
1: Right. I mean, I think the underlying question is, is our world absolutely chaotic or is there some sort of method to it? And each human being has to reconcile that, whether it's through religion or spirituality or an acceptance that – we live in a cold, unfeeling place. And um, when we die, there is nothing beyond that. So those are two ends of the spectrum. And everything in between is an ability to reconcile um, how we need to live our life and and what allows us to get out of bed every day. Some people can't stand the idea that there's nothing more. And other people need that, um, need a a a belief that there is something, a net holding us in place. And um, night film is obviously an investigation of what that desire and that belief will be.
0: It's also, too, a a very uh, pointed um, investigation of the fine line between, especially for an artist, between his art and his life, and how there's—it's often really pretty much impossible to distinguish one from another, either through obsession, through spending their time, mm-hmm. or just because you really can't tell whether they're BSing you or not.
1: Well, yes, and I—I I think especially with the the character of Cordova, someone who is mad to create art. I was certainly influenced by certain things that I had read about different directors and different auteurs and painters as well. But the idea that in the creation of art, specifically for Kubrick, when he was researching a new film, his personal life was infused by that. And when I was reading about his Napoleon film, which was never made um, and how specific he be he got with um, the costumes and the the pe- the period and the level or uh, the kind of bayonets that the army would have used and and how specifically he entered into that historical world and how that pervaded his family life was amazing to me because I think, When you are mad to create a work of art, you can't help but live that in some context. And the people around you are elevated from it, and then they suffer from that as well.
0: Did that happen to you writing this book?
1: (laughs) Of course. I'm not as extreme as Cordova, but if there's not something that eats you up and drives you mad... Um, I just don't think you're going to make it to the end of the writing because, I mean, writing a novel is like climbing a mountain and you cannot see the top when you start out. And it's a violent but ultimately um, quite sustaining thing to do when you finally do reach the top. It's the best kind of work and travail that you can have. but. I mean, certainly, there has to be a level of obsession, I think. I mean, funnily enough, someone's like, oh, gosh, Scott is so obsessed. And I began to think, is he obsessed or does he just care very, 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 very deeply about something? And what is really the difference? It's a question.
0: It strikes me, too, that your approach to creating this work was not just starting at word one, here I sit at my pen, writing to the end that you kind of built this from the outside in, that you Mm -hmm. built the world first. And that's uh, a task that's usually left to the science fiction writers, building Dune or a a universe. But you built this own kind of pocket universe of a a, a very human pocket universe.
1: Well, I think I began to think in those terms, especially for the second half. I don't think with special topics I had the sense of I had a a lone planet with no atmosphere that I was going to start you know, giving life to and, um, and giving it an atmosphere and giving it rules and what its laws of physics would be. I think with night film, I really began to think in terms of that, um, really three dimensional world and, um, and let
0: there be dark,
1: let there be dark and let there be a little light too. And, um, I, I like that. And now I've actually started my next book, and I still have that same sense of um, beginning with a very bleak planet and then introducing specific life forms and seeing what's going to happen.
0: Well, it, tell us a little bit about this. You <laughs> I you <can't, work? laughs> I shouldn't have brought that oh. up, the
1: third novel. Um, well, I can't give you any specifics as to what it's about because I believe there's a quote in Night Film that talks about the artist needing anonymity and invisibility in order to create and darkness Mm -hmm. he or she needs a dark room in order to be free and I agree with that I like to feel that I have no eyes on me that it's really just me and the work however long it takes because then I have freedom
0: well that's certainly understandable (laughs) because I mean well for my take on it is is that the second I start talking about something Uh, is the second that it stops getting worked
1: on. Exactly. It dies. Yes. There's something... Well, I think someone has said, I know I can't remember who said it, but that once you introduce it to the world, you've already introduced it to the world. And it's so much better to keep it to yourself, and then there's this mad need for it to take the form um, for the first time. And if that can be a novel, then that's great. But if you, specific, I think if I talk about an idea, it no longer holds any mystery to me. And it's the mystery that keeps me coming back to an idea for a novel.
0: Now, how, uh, I'm really curious, how much resemblance did the first version of this novel bear to the one we hold in our hands?
1: This, oh, well, I would say that the first, well, this had two drafts. So the first draft that I turned in, Um, it was basically like in the topsoil. And then Night Film, the final book, went much deeper down to the mantle of the earth. Um, I had all the elements in place. I just needed to dig much deeper. And I think that was because I had taken so much time off from writing for for traveling for special topics that when I finally sat down to write my second novel, I felt really... um, I I think of writing in terms of an athlete, and it's a muscle that you – it's something that – to write a novel, you have to train every day, which means writing every day. You have to show up when you don't want to. You're running a marathon. You have to keep going. Um, You have to train that muscle. And coming off of Special Topics, I was completely out of shape in terms of writing. So it took a long time to get back – stretching those muscles, getting back into that mode. And um so the first draft, all of the elements were there. I just had not sunk deep down enough.
0: Well, I, it strikes me again too as interesting that your approach to uh doing the world building first and then coming back and retrofitting in uh different characters. It seem that's a that's a For a book that seems so organic and where the characters are so important, that's a really interesting approach.
1: Mm. Well, I think that unlike special topics where I had really – stage manage the entire plot and knew everything that was going to happen before I set out to write a word. I mean, this book was very much building that world, setting my characters loose and allowing the plot to organically come out of that. Um, and then the characters would surface from that landscape in a very Real way, and of course, once I honed in on certain truths, I would go back and fix the manuscript and make sure those clues had been laid so that truth would be obvious when it finally clicks into place. But um, it did have this sort of um, jungle-like feel to it in terms of um, hacking Scott and his other and the other characters hacking their way through a jungle and then allowing certain things to come to light.
0: And, and I like the the feel of this in terms of a kind of a gothic odyssey Mm -hmm. because as a gothic odyssey, uh, we have a character who goes through so much that by the end of their journey, they're so changed by it that you really are unable to return home.
1: I loved that idea. I mean, I thought that because the events of Night Film are taking place on the periphery of society, in a finite period of time. I think it's like about two and a half weeks that the entire book takes place. I wanted to have a very extreme circumstance. So exactly as you say, that it calls into question, can Scott ever come back from this experience?
0: And he... It's also interesting, too, though, that the other characters, Nora recognizes things in Scott that he doesn't even understand about himself, and I think so does Hopper. So it's interesting to have characters who can see one another better sometimes than the reader can, but can also bring those experiences out and— I mean, you just have so many great little side characters on Marlowe Hughes and right. th- that whole kind of Hollywood feud going on. Yes. A lot of the stories in this book, it strikes me, are informed by Hollywood kind of stories. It, it takes Definitely. place and unfolds through that lens.
1: I mean, I had always, and I think um, the Marlowe Hughes strand of the story of, was, of course, inspired by. Um, Marlo Hughes and her sister Olivia was, of course, their feud was inspired by Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. Um, Because I grew up watching old movies. I was a huge Joan Fontaine fan. Um, And to find out that these sisters still to this day allegedly do not speak was incredible to me. I mean, that gives rise to so much um, drama and questions as to... um, what, what all of those old Hollywood stories could be. And um, so certainly that was inspired by um, those two.
0: This book also has a, a layer. That we can unlock with our uh, electronic appliances. Yes. And, and uh, <laughs> did you, how much of that did you know about when you were going into it? And how much of it did, did you design as you were going along or think about at least as you were going along?
1: Well, I knew that because we are in a very interesting place right now in terms of content creation, I knew that I wanted to do something interesting online with Cordova's films. And I thought. I thought it would be... Interesting to add a layer of narrative to the internet. So, for people who'd never heard of Night Film, if they happen to Google Cordova or Google Night Film, they'll come, they'll stumble upon layers of narrative that I designed, which will give you windows into the world of the book. But then, after you've read Night Film, if you go back and watch some of these clips, you'll have new clues and new insight into the mystery. Um, In terms of the Night Film app, I did not. Write Night Film with that in mind. So, when Random House came to me with the idea of doing something like that for the book, it was walking a fine line between um, not interrupting the actual reading experience. So, ultimately, I would want people to read Night Film, and then only afterwards, if they want some of the peripheral stories to come to light, they'll download the app. Um, but I did not write Night Film. Um, For a handheld, so you stop the reading experience to unlock things on your handheld. Uh, Because I love the reading experience as like a total submersion into the world. So I certainly did not um, want that to be interrupted.
0: Well, that, that's the way it works out because you put the note at the end. Exactly. So, but I think it's interesting, too, when you talk about this. Uh, these days, whenever we read, it's so easy. to If somebody mentions something in the book, you can just go, I better look that up and see if it's real. Right. And it's so much fun when you look that up and all of a sudden you're pulling up uh, stuff that you've created. So yes. that really contributes to that kind of blurring of reality because exactly. um, when we go on the internet, of course, who knows what the heck's out there. It's exactly. all made up.
1: Exactly. And then, um, well, you're so right. And then the story itself has another iteration online. And um, and coming up with all of that content meant tailoring it for each specific medium. Of course, with the novel and the physical text, you can be very deep and... Um, go in a lot of different directions. Online, it has to be shorter. Obviously, I didn't want any main character within the book to be represented in any of these short films that we did. So it's um, allowing the world to come to light and be reflected through all these different mediums. And it was really exciting. It was it was great fun to do because there was a collaborative aspect to it. Of course, as a novelist, you live and die by your own sword. But um, when I was creating the films, I had, got to collaborate with um, some really interesting people and allowing Cordo of his world to come to life and allow other people to, um, get excited about it and have ideas about it um, was wonderful.
0: And also to work with your own theatrical experience and bring that out as well.
1: Yes, I do make a Hitchcock cameo in one of the short films, but I don't think anyone can recognize me because I'm wearing a blonde wig.
0: (laughs) Well, now, uh, one of the things, too, that I thought was so interesting about this book was the kind of the feel of fact and fiction mixed in the book. We, You've gone to such a, a great length to give us both aspects of it. And also, at the end of the book, uh, you, know, you toss this question up in the air and uh, it becomes you turn this book, in a sense, into a mirror for the reader's own beliefs or unbeliefs, as it were.
1: Exactly. I think that that's ultimately what Scott figures out at the end of the book without giving anything away. But um, he's on this very extreme hunt for the truth. And what he encounters at the edge of the end is exactly that. It's that we have to take the world around us and our reality and make it real to ourselves. And that always requires a leap of faith. We will never know for certain. And, um, and It's really up to the reader and Scott to decide what to believe.
0: I've been speaking with Marisha Pessel. Her new novel is Night Film. Thank you for joining me, Marisha.
1: It was a great pleasure. Thank you for having me.